Hi, and welcome to UCM Red, a UK true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And thank you to our new Patreon supporters. Yeah, so thank you so much. And hi to Valerie Urban, to Jackie McDougall, and to Amy Crane. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, it really you, means the world. Yeah, and your support really helps cover the costs of producing the show. If you don't currently support us on Patreon, but you would like to, then you can find us at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Yeah. We've got three different tiers of support starting at $3 a month, and we send out. Uh, merchandise and goodies to everyone don't we definitely so yeah come and join us over there this week mark has got the story to share with us so take it away on the 17th of september in 2009 stuart ludlam found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time when he was shot dead in a picturesque village of cromford in derbyshire cromford has been described as a tight-knit community and has a population of around 1500 Nestled in the Peak District, Cromford is an historic village, part of which is designated as a World Heritage Site. In the 1800s, Sir Richard Arkwright built the world's first water-powered cotton mill in the village, and so it has an important place in history and has been acknowledged as the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. I I did wonder whether I was going to bore everyone with that, but it's an important place and it Mm. it really is a nice place. I think you've kept it short enough. It's not, Good. Been, it's not been too many facts, but... And for any history buffs out there, mm-hmm. they might find that interesting. Yeah. So, as well as being an important village, it is also beautiful and attracts thousands of holidaymakers every year. And it was one such holidaymaker, a man called Peter Noble, who made a gruesome discovery at Cromford Railway Station on the afternoon of Thursday the 17th of September in 2009. He noticed a taxi in the middle of the road and sensing something wasn't quite right, he approached the car and saw an arm hanging out of the boot. The engine was still running and nobody else was around. Apprehensive, Peter tentatively opened the boot to investigate further. Lying there was the body of local minicab driver and father of three, 43-year-old Stuart Ludlam. Peter called the emergency services and said, there's a man in the boot, the back window's been smashed, there's loads of blood, I can't even look. The operator told Peter to back away from the car and await the police. And I probably haven't made it clear at this point, but Peter was with a woman at the time, Mm. presumed to be his wife. So he wasn't on his own, but it's like you say, can you imagine stumbling across that? Um, How scared you must be, and it really is a remote location. Um, So where the railway station is, it's almost in a bit of a valley Mm. and there's kind of trees all around high up. You'd be worried, like, is there someone still going around that's just killed this person? Like, are we in danger as well? Totally, you would. You'd be thinking all of that. Um, So it could feel quite enclosed there, I think, as well. You've literally just discovered a man in the boot of his car, Mm. clearly dead, obviously murdered. You're literally going to be in a state of panic at that point. So, who was Stuart Ludlam and how did he end up shot dead in the boot of his own taxi? Oh, he was in his own boot as well. Yeah. Oh, God. Does make it worse, doesn't it? I don't know why. Like, yeah, why I, does, I agree. But, I don't yeah. know why, but mm. definitely does. Described by those who knew him as a kind, helpful and funny man, Stuart was devoted to his wife of 17 years, Paula, and the couple had three children, Jonathan, 15, Matthew, 12, and two-year-old Amy. 
A huge football fan, Stewart was a regular fixture at Derby County's home games and had worked for local taxi firm MJ Taxis for 15 years. He was popular and well-liked, so why would somebody want him dead? Now, as I said earlier, Cromford is a small village, and although there is definitely a strong sense of community there, it is the sort of place where everybody knows everybody's mm. business, um, the sort of place where gossip and rumour-mongering is rife, and sadly, in the days following Stuart's murder, the rumour mill went into overdrive. Oh, that's horrible. I hate when this sort of thing happens. But I, equally, I, I kind of think it's natural. It is natural, but it is really shitty. Uh, totally. It sounds like the sort of place you'd love, though, because you love a good gossip. <laughs> I do love a good gossip. You're absolutely bang on there. So I probably should move there. Mm. So there was talk of Stuart's involvement in drugs, blackmail, robbery, talk of a dispute with a rival taxi firm. Talk of an affair with his boss, Tracy Shelton, with some speculating that Tracy's husband, Mick, had murdered Stuart when he discovered they'd been having an affair. But the police interviewed Stuart's family, friends, colleagues and associates, and they found absolutely no basis in any of the rumours. Had at least one of these rumours been true, then they would have at least had something to go on, a credible line of inquiry, a motive. What makes today's case so chilling, however, is that there was no motive. This is what is known as a stranger murder, and while Stuart's murder was planned with terrifying precision, there was no grudge, no score to settle, no financial gain to be made. I think sometimes as well that's that's the almost like the perfect crime, because if there's no link from the killer to the victim, that makes the police's job so difficult to then make any sort of connections and work out what could have happened. And that's the first thing the police look for, mm -hmm. is a motive, so they yeah. can narrow down that list of suspects. Absolutely correct. Yeah, I was talking to um, a couple of our listeners the other day, Jade and Cam, and we were talking about, like, what would... How would you, you know, have the perfect murder? And we were discussing, like, it needs to be, like, a stranger murder. So I was like, don't worry, she's not going to kill you because you know each other and stuff. So it would be really interesting. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely the, the key thing is if there's no links at all, then all the police will have to go on is DNA. And if you're clever enough to cover that sort of tracks and stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So I did find some information out about motiveless murders and I stumbled across a really good website. Um, it's called nickdavis.net. Um, so Nick Davis is a retired investigative journalist and he interviewed the late true crime author Colin Wilson, who said murderers expressed the frustration of their era. For centuries, people killed for economic reasons because their greatest unfulfilled need was for food. In more affluent modern times, they murdered for sex because they were sexually underprivileged. Wilson argued that there is a new kind of killer for our time, though. A killer who murders without any personal motive. A killer who murders to express a profound frustration of the spirit, as he called it. He says these killers invariably come from dull, working-class backgrounds and they believe they are not getting their dues, not getting what they deserve out of life. They choose killing as a means of expressing themselves and they have this resentment, a very powerful resentment, and they set out to help themselves to what they want. So Wilson focuses his theory on the motiveless murderer on a particular type of serial killer. 
The cool assassin, a strong-willed complex individual who feels out of step with society, who might have become a poet or an artist if he were not, in Wilson's words, a romantic in an age of defeat. He kills to express his scorn for mankind. And I think this describes Stuart's killer perfectly, as we'll go on to see. Mm-hmm. So he's not saying all murderers are motiveless mm-hmm. murderers, but those that are tend to be serial killers and cold and calculated. Yeah. Because that's the thing. If you kill someone in a crime of passion, what is the likelihood that you're also going to have that passionate feeling towards another person? Like you kill someone because there's like a road rage accident or... Um, your partner's cheated or something that is going to happen and it's a split second thing whereas yeah if you've got someone who just kills for the sake of it that could happen more and more because they're going to get that thrill from it I think you're right and you know we wanted to call the podcast Seeing Red because Mm -hmm. so often when a crime is committed it's as a result of somebody just losing it but this you know really is a case of somebody not seeing red Mm -hmm. it was cold and calculated I remember when you Came to me with the name for this podcast. It was a great those, name, though. You, you know, months and months ago. Yeah. Probably but, like a year ago I, re- now. I reckon like June last yeah. year. We started planning it a couple of months before That's the first true. episode. Yeah. But I feel like you were, you had your ideas even before we agreed to do it. So. I probably did, yeah. Aww. I had to persuade you, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. There we go. Bit of memory lane. Yeah. Um, anyway, so following the discovery of Stuart's body, police sealed off the crime scene and began their investigations in earnest. They established that Stuart had died from a single gunshot to the head, which had been fired from a .22 calibre rifle. Now, there are varying reports regarding Stuart's injuries. All agree that he was shot at twice. However, contrary to some reports which claimed he was shot twice in the head, this isn't actually true. So, so there were two shots fired, but only one shot hit him, correct? Sort of. Okay. Yeah, only one of the shots actually did any significant damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'll explain. So, um, the rear window of Stuart's car had been taken out from the first gunshot, mm-hmm. and that bullet had caused some superficial injuries to Stuart, but its impact had been significantly reduced because mm-hmm. it was fired through glass. Yeah. So, it kind of hit him in the head, but it hadn't actually penetrated his skull. Mm-hmm. So, he... If that was the only gunshot, he perhaps would have survived then because it would have been something that... It's still horrible, but... Yeah, I think it makes it worse because he would have absolutely survived that. Mm. He wouldn't have really been significantly injured. He'd have been completely aware of what was happening. Mm. So police established the second gunshot had been fired at point-blank range. So, as I said, it would appear Stuart knew exactly what was happening to him in the seconds before the fatal shot was delivered. Um. Possibly, like, you might come on to this, possibly just a weird thing to pick up on, but so he was just sat in the back seat of his own taxi. Is that, like, a normal thing, do you think? No, he was de- he was sat in the driver's seat, oh, okay. but um, he'd been shot. Somebody had pointed the gun and the kind of bullet had penetrated through the rear window all the way to Stuart in the front well, that seat. That seems like a weird thing to do because you've got the headrest in the way. Surely you'd shoot through the window next to his head. I don't know. Must just, have been the opposite. It was just a strange way f- to hear it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, but at least he wasn't just sat in the back seat because that no. did seem a bit strange. Like when you're waiting for your mum and dad in Wix's and you're just in the... Well, probably don't do that with children nowadays, do they? No, they're, they're much more looked after <laughs> than that. Um, I was definitely a kid in a pub car park with a bag of crisps. <laughs> yeah. So as I said earlier, Cromford is a tight-knit community and police were careful to release limited information uh, to that community, to the public. 
They revealed that a man had been found dead at Cromford Railway Station, that he'd been murdered, but they did not inform the public that he'd been shot. They knew that this information would likely cause panic within Mm, the community. And I do get that because I think in this country in particular, Mm -hmm. and more so probably in a rural location, when you hear that somebody's been murdered because they've been shot with a gun, it just strikes panic. Definitely. It would. You'd be like, there's a a gunman on the rampage, things like that would come into your head. Whereas if the police have literally had this one isolated incident, they perhaps don't think that there's a gunman. It's not like Raoul Moat where they knew he was on the run and they needed to tell people to warn them. So you don't want to cause like undue panic. And as it was, even with limited information being released to the press and to the community, taxi drivers in particular were really cautious about mm. accepting any fares from non-regular yeah, customers. Yeah, you would be. But you'd also be scared of your regulars, because what if your regular customer was a bit of a weirdo that you'd always thought was a bit off? When it comes to something else, you do then start to judge people on their character and perhaps get a bit worried about them. So Yeah, you sort of trust nobody in that mm. situation, I guess. So when police interviewed Tracy and Mick Shelton, the owners of the taxi firm Stuart worked for, they ascertained that Stuart had been running the switchboard on the morning of his murder, as well as driving his taxi. Tracy usually ran switchboard while husband Mick worked alongside Stuart as a taxi driver. However, that morning they had been to a funeral and so Stuart was responsible for taking bookings on his phone, which the office phone had been diverted to, and directing the other drivers and himself accordingly. Police needed to establish the course of events that morning, and a witness came forward saying they'd seen Stuart at approximately 10.30am at Matlock Taxi Rank, which is near to Cromford. So, they knew he was murdered between 10.30 and 12.40pm, the time at which his body was found by holidaymaker Mm -hmm. Peter Noble. Police needed to ascertain how Stuart had come to be at Cromford Railway Station that morning. There was no taxi rank at the station, but the taxi company did leave business cards in the ticket office advertising their services. Police knew it was highly likely that somebody had summoned Stuart to the station by calling for a taxi. Police now believe Stuart was either targeted randomly, so the killer telephoned MJ Taxis with the intention of murdering whoever turned up, Mm. or he was targeted by someone who knew he would be taking the bookings that morning and who would therefore have been able to ask for him specifically. Mm As I said earlier, police did interview Stuart's colleagues and Mm -hmm. the owners of MJ Taxis. However, they very quickly ruled out the possibility that Stuart had been murdered by anybody that he knew. In the days after his murder, Stuart's mum Sheila and his wife Paula made a televised appeal asking for information. Looking into the camera, a distraught Paula said, All I want to know now is who set it all up and who did it. I want the person who did it to get life. Police went through every call taken by Stuart on the morning of his murder. If he had been summoned to the station by his murderer, surely this was likely to be the last call he took and police would be able to trace the number. Stuart's murderer had done a pretty good job of covering his tracks, however. The phone used to call Stuart to summon him to his death had been made using a pay-as-you-go phone, a burner phone. Mm. Police were able to trace where the phone had been bought, however, which I did find really interesting. Because I thought with burner phones, they're pretty much completely untraceable. No, I do think so. I think if you've got like the serial numbers and stuff, you can then 
it's just whoever pays for it, whether they pay by cash or card, I think, mm. is then when it's difficult. I'm basing this purely off of TV and like documentaries and stuff. But you're definitely right. Yeah, I feel like the serial numbers of the phones will have to be like taken back somewhere to the the shop that sort of sold them and things. Yeah, because I mean, I, all I could think is that you know the telephone number assigned to each phone mm. must be able to be cross referenced against a type of phone, and then maybe some models of phones are only sold through certain retailers. Yeah, they then might have the serial number, so they can locate mm. exactly where it was bought. But you know, I don't know. But either way, the police established that the phone had been bought in cash. For £9.99, oh, yeah, at Morrison's in Derby, which wasn't far from the site of the murder. Mm-hmm. Had the phone been bought by debit or credit card, as you said, police would have been able to trace the purchaser through bank records. Mm. All was not lost, however, when police discovered the phone had been loaded with credit from a top-up voucher bought at the petrol station adjacent to the supermarket. Police knew approximately what time this transaction had occurred and visited the petrol station. However, they were told that there was no record of that particular transaction. All transactions were categorised and recorded, but when staff had checked for a mobile top-up for that time in question, there was just simply no record of it. Detective Superintendent Tony Blockley, who was leading the investigation, knew this couldn't be right and he sent his officers back to the petrol station to get staff to check once again. When they looked more closely, they discovered one transaction for two items, £20 worth of petrol and a £5 mobile phone top-up. Oh, so they were just looking for a single... Yeah. That's ridiculous. It definitely might buy a chocolate bar or something alongside yeah. your mobile phone. Exactly. So mm. because the two transactions were recorded together and paid for at the same time, and because the petrol made up the bulk of that total, the transaction had been recorded as fuel. Oh, okay. Oh, fair. So they weren't being completely stupid. But they could have still looked at pretty much all transactions for yeah. that morning. So in a major breakthrough for the investigation, police discovered the transaction had been paid for with a credit card and they wasted no time in finding out who this belonged to. Police discovered the account holder was 61-year-old local man Colin Cheatham. When they ran his name through their systems, they noticed he held a firearms licence. He had been a member of the Swaddling Coat Rifle and Pistol Club for 13 years, and what's more, he had access to .22 calibre weapons, the type which had been used to shoot Stuart Ludlam. They obtained a photo from his shotgun licence, and now they knew what he looked like, they set about reviewing the CCTV footage from Morrison's to look for him on the day the phone was bought. After all, somebody else could have used his credit card that day. Yeah. Perhaps it could have been stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, really, the evidence was just circumstantial. Yeah. They needed to pin him there. And almost to, like, rule him out as well. If he's innocent, it, they need to rule him out somehow. Yeah, Obviously, it's a classic case of we need, yeah. to, we need to review that CCTV mm. footage to eliminate him from our inquiries. Police saw him on the CCTV footage going into the supermarket just before their records indicated the phone was purchased. And if you get a chance, have a look at the footage because, I don't know, it's not shocking, but it's Mm. surprising, I would say, when you get a good look of this guy. So it shows him walking with a stick, almost sort of limping. And don't forget, he's 61, but Mm. he probably looks 10 years older. Mm. And he's a really big guy. And I've read reports that he was like 27 stone. Um, which for our American listeners is £378. Oh, there we go. Um, I'm not so sure he was that big, but either way, you know, he was a huge guy, mm. walking with a limp, walking with a stick. 
After purchasing the phone, there's no CCTV footage of that, and I don't know why, um, but after purchasing the phone, just as he's about to leave the supermarket, he's captured once again on the CCTV system, this time heading into the disabled toilets. Now, don't worry, there is no footage of him inside the toilets. Why would there... Oh, why would anybody think there would be? I just thought, really, what a disgusting image of him (laughs) in in the toilets. Um, But what what the police did notice was that seconds after he entered the disabled toilets, the phone was activated. So with those sort of Mm. pay-as-you-go phones, you have to phone up and activate them. Yeah. Police now had enough evidence to make an arrest. And so, on the 27th of September, just 10 days after Stuart's murder... Colin Cheatham was arrested on suspicion of his murder. Cheatham was taken into custody and interviewed over a number of days, with officers conducting a thorough search of his house. When they arrived at his house, which he shared with his wife Jennifer, they were met with a chaotic scene. Several rooms were uninhabitable, magazines piled from floor to ceiling, rubbish everywhere, and literally, you're going to hate this, Bethan, Mm. hundreds of bottles of his own urine. Why do people do... What is with this? I've seen pictures of his house and it is horrific, but I didn't know that there was bottles of his own piss. What? Literally Why? hundreds of bottles. Um, we saw this, didn't oh. we, on... Was it the... Oh, what, what case? Jodie Jones. Yeah. Her murderer yeah, he did the just, same like, thing. He was bottles of his own wee in there because he... I just don't understand it. Like, there's a lot of things when people perhaps lose it a little bit and they start acting strangely... I can understand it, but keeping bottled wee, I just don't get it. It just doesn't, I don't know. There is kind of a reason for it, and I will come on to it, but I would kind of urge any of our listeners, if you know somebody that (laughs) pisses into bottles and just kind of leaves it laying around the house, report them to the police. Yeah, go get a welfare check done on it. Yeah, they'll definitely be up to no good. Because I think like the, the hoarding side of things, I can understand the psychology behind it. I can understand what happens with people and... I'm a bit of a hoarder myself, like nowhere near as bad as I wouldn't have piled up newspapers from 30 years ago. But it, that at least I can understand. But the wee, I just don't get it. Yeah, why would you want to hoard Please bottles of your own piss? why he had his wee. So the upstairs was essentially a no-go zone and Cheatham and his wife, who was a virtual recluse and had not been seen by neighbours for 20 years, were living downstairs. Now, at this point, actually, I have to say I really feel for his wife, Jennifer. Um, So I couldn't find any more information out about her. But um, to have not left the house for 20 years and to be living in those conditions, Mm. I'm sort of guessing that she must have been suffering from some form of mental illness. And I do wonder what her life was like living with that man in such squalid conditions for 20 years, going years without seeing anybody but him. Just living downstairs and not being able to go upstairs. And and that's where the plastic bottles of piss come in. They couldn't use the bathroom, and I'm guessing that there was no downstairs toilet. (laughs) So at least there's a semi-reason for it here. Mm, I just think that, honestly, I just don't think there's any excuse for this. Like, I'm sure, like, and I'm sure she's got something that's really serious and it's very upsetting, but really, living downstairs while upstairs is disgusting and then not go... Like, did she have a bath or shower? Did he have a bath or shower? Well, that's it. They wouldn't have washed or anything, I guess, for for years properly. 
And he, he in particular looks like the sort of guy that would oh my stink. God, he does not look like he smells nice. He looks no. like he'd be a bit sticky as well. I don't like it. Sweaty, sticky oh. and stinky. Right, let's move on. Um, <laughs> so the Cheatums actually do have two grown-up children. So Why are they not looking out for their parents I know. and then sorting out their house? But, but all I can think is, I, you know, I, it's no um, shock here. Cheatum did commit the murder. Mm. And I hope that Jennifer has kind of found the help that she so oh desperately goodness, needed. Really hope so. And that, you know, she's got a relationship with, with the two two children and, and that they're a support network for her. I hope so. Yeah. I just spent a bit of time, I don't know why, but I just spent a bit of time reflecting on, you know, 20 years trapped in that cesspit of a house with that sick bastard. Mm. You know, what a terrible life for her. So I hope she's living a better life now. You're being very um, kind and like sympathetic tonight and it's nice. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I am being nicer tonight. You are being definitely. Nicer, whereas I'm just like, ugh, why yeah, you're my like fucking there, disgusting. Yeah. yeah, like if I turned up at my mum and dad's house and my mum had pissed in a bottle and left it on the side, I would be like, sort your stuff out. <laughs> Honestly, I'm conscious that we we didn't swear for like the first twenty minutes, and there's loads of swearing now. We've had so talked about peeing but, in but a we've bottle. had so many comments. You know com- what winds me up? We've had so many comments from people, haven't we? Saying lots of swearing. We've not but recently, we had that one um, iTunes review, but I don't think it was about us because they said oh, you yeah, girls, yeah. And, unless they think you sound you sound like a girl. I'm a bit girly. You are a bit girly, but they haven't seen a picture of you wearing your dress. True, not yet. <laughs> we'll put that up later in the year. Yeah, I do apologise. It's because you've talked about peeing in a bottle, and I just think it's disgusting. So, due to the house resembling the inside of a rubbish lorry, it took officers days to go through it searching for clues. When they interviewed Cheatham, he came across as arrogant, somebody who wanted to dominate proceedings, almost revelling in the attention and the genius of his crime. Detective Superintendent Tony Blockley said Cheatham was a real talker in all of his interviews. He would ramble on and on and avoid answering the question that had been put to him by talking and talking for literally hours, all the while skirting around the question in the hope that officers would basically just get bored and move on. Oh, can you imagine having to interview him? What a nightmare. Yeah, and we've all met people, haven't we, that just talk and talk and talk and it's like, just get to the point. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of do lose the will to live. Yeah, just get to the point, Mark. Oh, okay. So, like, yeah, I'll just skip to the end now. (laughs) So, Blockley did use this to his advantage. He let Cheatham talk and talk, and in doing so, he uncovered far more information about his movements on the day, his interest in guns, and his general behaviour. Blockley confronted Cheatham with a piece of evidence suggesting he had been at the crime scene at the time of the murder. The police had trawled through traffic cameras and had located his car heading towards Cromford Railway Station shortly before the murder took place. Cheatham admitted he had been there but was adamant he had not committed the murder. He rambled on and on saying yes he had seen the taxi, seen the body, seen that the victim had been shot in the head but he said he had had nothing to do with it. With the position of the body in the boot of the taxi, however, there is no way that Cheatham would have known that Stewart had been shot in the head. The police hadn't released that information to the press, and if Blockley had any doubts about his guilt up to this point, they were now gone. Interviewed about his spending habits, it became apparent that Cheatham had a mild form of OCD, which kind of goes some way to explaining his compulsion to hoard. Mm, yeah. Talking about how he paid for items, he said he always paid for anything under £10 in cash and anything over £10 by credit card. And that was almost like an uncontrollable behaviour that he possessed. Which he's then shown in the fact that the phone was like, what, nine ninety five or something and 
paid for it in cash. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So that just added credence to the fact that it was him that had made those two purchases. In another damning twist, Cheatham admitted that in the weeks before Stuart's death, he'd ordered another taxi and requested to be taken to a rural location. Police tracked down the driver and interviewed him. He remembered dropping Cheatham off and recalled how when he'd gotten out of the car, he had fumbled in his inside jacket pocket before becoming distracted and eventually walking off. Police were convinced this was a dry run and had formed part of Cheatham's grand plan to commit murder and get away with it. And I also sort of think perhaps it was a dry run. Yeah, that could be it. Or perhaps Cheatham had intended to murder that taxi driver, but something had distracted him Mm. and he was put off by something or even maybe he bottled it. Yeah. I am with this case. I I thought that that was how he'd got caught. I hadn't realized I'd forgotten about like the mobile phone and stuff. And I thought it was something to do with that first almost go through. Cause I do think that that was, it was him going to do it for the first time but then he perhaps realized he's been in that car for a bit too long or or something like that I felt like maybe it was he he didn't go through with it that time because he realized he perhaps shouldn't but that's a really good point it might have just been a dry run to see how quickly does a taxi driver turn up or yeah like could I do this if I I'm not going to do it today Mm. but if I absolutely wanted to would I be able to do it um but yeah equally it could have been somebody drove past slowly and Mm -hmm. got a good look at him as he got out of the car um or maybe he just did think oh no I just can't do it or it might be one of those really nice taxi drivers that likes to chat and then he's heard about this guy's life and kids and stuff and thought you know what I need to just do it with someone who I don't even spend any time with because yeah, that might be easier than someone you've just spent twenty minutes driving around chatting about. As a with. minimum, he would have learned from mm, that exercise. Yeah, definitely. And can you imagine being that taxi driver? Oh my god! How close yeah. he'd come to death. Mm-hmm. During the search of his home, police uncovered a digital camera. On it were numerous photos of three different railway stations, all of which were in remote locations. Uh. One of the stations was Cromford. He had photographs of the rail timetable at Cromford and of the taxi calling cards at the entrance of the railway station. When police presented this evidence to him, he casually explained it away by saying he was making a calendar for a friend who was a train enthusiast. And to be fair, he does look like the sort of guy that would have a friend who's a train enthusiast. (laughs) So he didn't seem phased in any of his interviews and he clearly believed that he was going to get away with what he deemed to be the perfect crime. Police found numerous photos of him posing with guns in different countries all around the world. They found photos of him at shooting ranges, they found gun enthusiast magazines and they could clearly see that this was a gun fanatic. Forensic examination of Stuart Ludlam's taxi had uncovered very little evidence, however. What the police did find, though, was a number of smudge marks on the car which they believed had come from latex gloves. And they found latex gloves in the glove box of Cheatham's car. The evidence was stacking up, and as the time in which they could hold Cheatham for questioning drew to a close, the police charged him with the murder of Stuart Ludlam. Cheatham was remanded in custody and his two-week trial took place at Nottingham Crown Court on the 14th of June 2010, nine months after Stuart's murder. So quite a quick turnaround then. I thought that, Mm. yeah. Peter Joyce QC, acting for the prosecution, said Cheatham had set out to kill on the day of the murder. He said he had no motivation to kill Stuart specifically, he just wanted to kill somebody to know what it felt like for the thrill of it. 
Although the murder weapon was never recovered, he said it was Cheatham's gun that had shot Stuart Ludlam and it was his phone that had been used to lure him to the remote site of Cromford Railway Station. I can never say the word law. Do you know what? I was listening to you say it and I was like, don't say anything. That's I liked how you said it though. You sounded like really weird. I just say lure him. Lure him. Okay. I don't know, but you can say lure. it how you want. So, I love how you knew I was going to pick up. I, I remember saying it before in another case. I just can't say it. <laughs> um, so he said Cheatham had no knowledge of Stuart, but he had a fascination with taxes, which is random. That's weird yeah. to have a fascination with. But he does have OCD, so he's got a compulsive, yeah, obsessive fair. disorder. Yeah, um, And he had a fascination with guns, and he said mm-hmm. that Stuart was just the unlucky man with whom this fascination ended. Mm. During the trial, members of the jury were told Cheatham had a compulsive personality, as I said, and he had drawn on his obsessive nature by meticulously planning every aspect of this murder. A murder that was described to the jury as a crime of precision rather than passion. It's really interesting. Isn't that poetic? It's very poetic. I just think it's very interesting. So he's got this OCD and those behaviours, which could help in the fact that he can plan really well and that sort of thing. But actually then he's being tripped up by the fact that he had to go shopping with cash and then a card and got caught on CCTV and he's perhaps being tripped up with things that he then, he's storing the gloves and stuff. It's interesting because maybe if he was a bit more erratic, he would have made random decisions, which would not have been so structured. So it's a real, the case could have been quite a clever one. And he obviously made some very clever decisions to make the crime as as good as it was and as hard to track. But then he also made some pretty obvious mistakes as well. So really interesting. I think the OCD was a help and a hindrance. I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the only thing I did think of at this point is, you know, was, was he making some of these small mistakes because... Although he could get away with the perfect crime, if only he knew that he had committed that crime, maybe it wouldn't really mm. feel, you know, like it happened. And maybe that's why he's so cocky to the police, because he's like, he's happy that he's got that opportunity to talk about it and to be questioned. Yeah, and to and to be shown to be the genius mm. that he was. on. Yeah. You know, in, in a large part, he did a good job of covering his tracks. He just yeah. made a couple of stupid mistakes. You know, had he paid for that top-up and petrol with cash, yeah. he would still be out there to this day. And even day. on separate occasions as well, and maybe go do one one day and go do some, get the top-up another day somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So, as we said, really, Cheatham had gone to great lengths to get away with his crime. He had been up to the station several times prior to the murder to test that his phone had reception in the area, to take photos and to ascertain the best place to commit the murder. He had studied the train timetable and planned the time of the murder to coincide with a period when no trains were coming through or stopping at the station. The prosecution outlined the sequence of events that morning as follows. MJ Taxis receive a call from Cheatham at around 12 o'clock. This call is diverted to Stuart's mobile. Answering the call, Cheatham asks Stuart for a taxi to pick him up from Cromford Railway Station. Stuart arrives at the station, turns around at the end of the car park and starts coming back down the station approach. He then stops his car, either because Cheatham is stood in front of it or because he has flagged him down and he is then shot whilst he's in the driving seat. The bullet entering the car through the rear window makes contact with Stuart's head. Dazed and confused with a superficial wound to his head, Stuart gets out of his car at gunpoint before Cheatham marches him to the back of the car and demands that he open the boot. 
Cheatham orders a terrified Stuart to get into the boot and kneel down before blasting him in the head at point-blank range. That is horrible. In what the police have called a cold-blooded execution. I completely assumed that he was shot and it grazed him from the bullet going through the window and then he was shot in the head there to be I did, before I researched this. to the boot. And you just know what's going to happen to you. That is horrific. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. For me, that is the most disturbing mm. disturbing part of it. Um, Stuart would have known what was about to happen as he was marched to the back of the car and told to get into the boot. And I sort of thought, you know, how long was he kneeling there, fearing oh, for his life, yeah. before Cheatham pulled the trigger? Mm-hmm. Did he beg Cheatham to show mercy? Did he plead with him to think of the three children that died. would be left to grow up oh. without a dad? And I also thought, really chillingly, did Cheatham hesitate? Yeah. Or did he actually think, you know what, no, I've gone this far? And Yeah. But, you know, I just mm. thought it's just horrific and we'll never know the full facts of that day and it absolutely doesn't bear thinking about. It really is a brutal murder. Mm. Cheatham pleaded not guilty and his defence was composed in part from the rumours that were flying around after Stuart's murder. He claimed he had met a man called Jeff at the Old Oak pub in Horsley Woodhouse and the two had got chatting. Over a series of meetings at pubs including the Greyhound Inn in Belper and the George in Ripley, Jeff had told him that he wanted to settle a score with a drug dealer who had gotten his daughter hooked on drugs. Cheatham claims that Jeff asked him to provide him with a gun. He claimed Jeff wanted a gun to intimidate the drug dealer into handing over a stash of drugs, which he would then threaten to give to the police if the dealing did not stop. Cheatham told officers he'd agreed to lend a .22 bolt-action gun, provided it would not be fired. He said Jeff had used his phone to call Stuart Ludlam and then shot him following a heated argument. But Peter Joyce QC said extensive police searches had found no records of this Jeff and that Cheatham's statements were complete bullshit. Mm. Just trying to make up a story now. And I think it's just awful because he's, you know, he's kind of really um, ruining Stuart Ludlam's reputation, saying that he was a drug dealer. exactly. And, you know, that was found to to not be the case. Mm. The court also heard that during searches of Cheatham's house, ammunition was found that matched the ammunition used to kill Stuart. And also Stuart's blood was found on a green fleece jacket that Cheatham owned. Unsurprisingly, with that wealth of evidence, on the 29th of June at the end of his trial, Cheatham was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 30 years. Mr Justice Alistair Macduff branded Cheatham evil. He said, you decided to execute a man for your own pleasure and gratification. Any man. There was no motive except your own enjoyment. How chilling that you were prepared to put to death a person you had never met. Cheatham showed no emotion as he was sentenced. Now, I talked about motiveless murders at the beginning of the episode, and Mm. as the late true crime author Colin Wilson said, these are often carried out by serial killers in a cold and calculated way, and police and other experts strongly believe had Colin Cheatham got away with the murder of Stuart Ludlum, they would have undoubtedly had a serial killer on their hands. It's very surprising to me that at his age, this would be his first killing. I mean, they obviously don't think that he killed anyone else. And I think that there would have been evidence he would have wanted to brag or something. Or there'd be other crimes which had a similar sort of MO. So this is clearly his first one. Why he got to that age before deciding 
to go for it. That's quite interesting to me because he's, you know, how old was he? 61. That's, yeah, that's, that to me is like really fascinating part of this. But I wonder if, you know, as Colin Wilson had said, you know, these motiveless murderers are often people that are just so unhappy with their lot in life. Yeah. And maybe it had taken until the age of 61 for Cheatham to be like, I'm not happy. I need retribution yeah. for all the shit that's gone on in my life. I'm not happy with how I'm living my life. The world owes me. Mm, yeah. Detective Superintendent Tony Blockley said, Colin Cheatham is an evil man who carried out a despicable act which was seemingly motiveless. The crime was totally unpredictable. He said, my own personal point of view is that he has executed Mr. Ludlum simply to see what it would be like to kill someone due to his personal fascination with firearms. He said, my only hope is at some point he can explain to someone why he has done this and we have never been able to prove a motive or glean the real story about what had happened. But for me, the story is that Mm. it's just a motiveless murder. He just wanted to know what it would be like to do it and so he did. After the trial, Stuart's mom said, nothing will bring Stuart back, but it shows justice has been done. He loved his children with all his heart, and all he ever wanted was a little girl. He got his little girl, but now she has no daddy. It's just so sad, and now he won't be able to see her grow up or get the chance to walk her down the aisle. I've got so many memories of him, and those will never leave me. Since his death, it has been horrible, such a struggle for all of us. Um, the only positive I could end on, thank you for trying. To I've end tried. On a positive. Was that in April two thousand and eleven? So about a year after Cheatham was sent to prison, nine members of the force and two retired officers received chief constables' commendations and judge commendations for their part in the investigation. Mm-hmm. And I really think it was a superb yeah. investigation. You know, within ten days of that murder, a motiveless murder mm-hmm. in a rural community, they had got their man. Yeah. Oh, that is, yeah, that is. And it is actually testament to the police force in this case. Absolutely. And we don't always see that. So I think, you know, we really should champion that when we see it. But um, we'd be really interested as ever to know what you think about this case. I think it's particularly chilling. I know that we've covered some really disturbing cases of late. And I promise we will get on to some less chilling ones in the future but you can reach out to us in all of the usual ways so you can get in touch with us on instagram twitter and facebook yep or you can um email us info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk excellent i think i got it right so until next time we will see you then thanks for listening guys Bye. bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy 
clarity and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.